Okay, we're gonna get started with the afternoon session. Hope everyone is no longer ketotic uh, after lunch. Um, uh, and I realize um, we have a very busy afternoon. We have four amazing talks in a row with no breaks. So we're gonna power through right to the end. So if anyone needs to osmo-regulate, um, feel free to do that you know, um, between the talks, but we're not gonna formally take a, take a break as we go through to the end of the day. Um, but our first talk uh, coming back is from Dr. Tim Wilkin from Weill Cornell uh, School of Medicine in New York City. Um, Tim has uh, really become one of the global experts on HPV-related disease and its treatment. He's led some of the seminal studies evaluating how uh, the HPV vaccine and uh, anal pap smears do or don't impact um, treatment outcomes for HIV-infected individuals. He's an HIV and infectious disease specialist at Weill Cornell. He's associate professor of medicine at Weill Cornell, and he's a good friend to us here in LA. I'm sure you're going to very much enjoy his talk. Tim. Thanks, Rafi. I appreciate that. Um, yes, so we're going to talk about anal cancer and preventing um, HPV-related malignancies. Here are my disclosures. And our learning objectives. Okay. So um, this diagram represents the global burden of HPV disease. Um, and in the top half, you can see the number of cancers. Today, we're going to talk about anal cancer and oropharyngeal cancers, two HPV-related cancers. But I will just point out that there's about a half a million women diagnosed every year with cervical cancer. It's a total, totally preventable cancer through HPV vaccination and active screening. And we should always be mindful of that. So for anal cancer, here are some rates of anal cancer over time. There's uh, three lines. The light blue line on the top is the rate of cancer in HIV-infected men who have sex with men, or I should say men who have sex with men living with HIV. Uh, and the darker blue below that are other men living with HIV. And in the orange line are women with uh, living with HIV. And these rates, just to give you some context, um, are much higher than the rates of cervical cancer that we currently have in the United States and uh, are on par or higher than the rates of cervical cancer prior to routine pap smear screening. So in areas of the world with access to cervical cancer prevention services and effective programs, the rates of cervical cancer have declined dramatically over the years. So just to give you a snapshot of HPV pathogenesis, um, it seems that most HPV disease works this way. We'll talk about an exception in just a second. But um, here you have an initial HPV infection on the left of the screen. And uh, most of the HPV infections just kind of go away on their own. They might hang around for a little bit, but they just are cleared naturally. Uh, it's a subset that has this continuing or persistent infection. And we define that as infections that last over six months. And if there's enough, if the infection lasts long enough and then there's enough damage to the DNA and integration of the HPV into the DNA, you can have development of anal hycel or high-grade lesions. These are the lesions that may turn into cancer. <clears throat> Most of them never will, but a subset will advance to invasive anal cancer. 
So when we talk about HPV in the context of HIV infection, they're both sexually transmitted disease, so people living with HIV have generally been exposed to more HPV infections. But it's really the um, immune deficiency from HIV that really affects cell-mediated immunity, and, which is really needed to clear HPV infections. And so as a result, you get a um, shunting from HPV infection to persistent infection to the high-grade disease and ultimately the increased rate of invasive cancer. Uh, the one disease that perhaps is different is oral HPV uh, infection and relation to cancer. We don't really have a pre-malignant lesion that's been identified for oropharyngeal cancer, just a preview for the later in the talk. Uh, but otherwise, for cervical, penile, um, vaginal, vulvar disease, it all seems to um, follow a similar, similar pathway. So we have two ways to really prevent anal cancer. The one that's accepted um, and is uh, FDA approved or um, has the indication is for vaccination to prevent initial HPV infection. The second strategy we have is really to screen and identify these pre-malignant lesions and treat them uh, with ablation or creams or a variety of uh, mechanisms to really get rid of these high-grade lesions in an effort to reduce the risk of invasive cancer. So um, to talk about this um, active screening approach, uh, to remind you, the goal of anal cancer prevention, this active screening, is to identify precancerous areas of the anus that can be removed to prevent invasive cancer. So generally, we start with a screening test, and usually that's cytology. Uh, that's the most accepted screening test. Um, it could be that we can use H HPV testing in a similar manner, but that's currently not what most people uh, start with, and there's not an FDA indication for HPV testing. So to perform a cytology is really quite simple. You just have the patient undress, lean over the table, you use one hand to spread the buttock. You want to get your fingers close to the anus and spread as much as you can to make it a little more comfortable for the patient. And then you have a moistened Dacron swab that you insert very gently, uh, just about an in, uh, a couple inches, and then you just rub against the wall of the anus as you, in a circular manner and sl slowly pull out. Um, you want to count to 10 slowly, so you really are getting enough cells rubbed off, and then swish it around in the liquid-based cytology for a good 30 seconds. So um, any providers, uh, RNs, NPs, whatever, can, can do the cytology testing. Uh, it's really just the time uh, rubbing the cells that's most uh, important to getting a result. And once you do that, you should have an interpretable result at least 95 out of 100 times. You should really only rarely have an uninterpretable pap smear. If you have a bunch of those, it just means you're not, your technique needs to be improved. Okay, so that, anyone should be able to try that in your clinical practice should you want to. Uh, so the next step after screening is to really diagnose whether the person has high-grade disease or H-cell. And so we use the um, procedure called high-resolution anoscopy, uh, which is, again, an office-based procedure. It's very similar to cervical colposcopy. It uses acetic acid and iodine to identify these areas of high-grade disease. You biopsy the areas you think are high-grade disease, and then once you get your pathology results, you then know where to go back and target your ablation. So uh, in the pictures along the bottom, um, on the left you have the cytology. So there, the pathologist is looking for abnormal squamous cells, uh, kind of larger rounded nuclei, rounder cells as compared to the normal squamous epithelial cells. In the middle panel you can see the um, high-grade disease, that yellow spot up uh, around, say, 10 o'clock on the, 
on the picture. And so this is after staining with iodine. So normal epithelium takes up the iodine and looks dark brown, whereas the high H cell looks yellow. So we would biopsy that area, and if it came back as having high-grade disease, then we would target our ablation. And on the right, you can see what's a standard treatment for high-grade disease, which is to anesthetize the area with local anesthetic and use, um, in this case, it's a hypercator to ablate the tissue. You want to treat the full extent of the H-cell lesion to hopefully uh, prevent uh, invasive cancer at some point. So uh, just to remind you that if you find anal cancer very early, which sometimes we find it on these biopsies, um, you can actually treat with um, just a simple excision, uh, which is a relatively quick um, or a quick and effective procedure for this very limited anal cancer. But by far the majority of anal cancers are more ex uh, extensive and require chemotherapy and radiation. So it's a very effective treatment as far as cancers go, but it's a very morbid treatment. People are getting daily radiation to their anus, and obviously that would have a lot of morbidity. Are you advancing down there? Sorry. Okay, um, sorry, uh, a little bit, I can turn to the side. Um, so what I wanted to show you, uh, one of the critical things about screening, it really all comes down to the HRA procedure. It's a very difficult procedure to really methodically identify these lesions. And you really want to find all the lesions so you can really uh, treat the areas. Um, sorry. Um, so uh, in this case, uh, an investigator in the Netherlands uh, put out his learning curve, basically how well did he do with HRA over time. And if you look at sort of the middle line uh, is the proportion of patients in each of these groups over time that were diagnosed with H-cell. And what you can see is that the he, more and more people were diagnosed with H-cell on their first HRA. Did the population change? Did the disease change? No, he just got better at doing the treatment. And these are after hundreds of HRAs. So it's quite a daunting task to really become proficient in this um, procedure. Uh, so we really have to pay a lot of attention to our results and the quality of our results. All right, so next we're gonna move on to a question. So which of these uh, is the recommended way to prevent anal cancer according to national guidelines? Is it treatment of anal condyloma, HPV vaccination prior to sexual activity, screening and treatment of anal high cell, or HPV vaccination of sexually active adults? It is after lunch, and I might go for the peppier Spotify list if you, just a, just a thought. All right, that's close enough. Yes, so I did allude to this. HPV vaccination is really the, the premier way to prevent anal cancer. It's the accepted way. The screening and treatment of anal hysel, we'll talk about studies that are ongoing to really define whether this is, the in fact, a good strategy, but we currently, most national guidelines do not recommend uh, this screening. <clears throat> so one of the issues, if you're starting an anal cancer screening program that comes up is who do you really include in this? Um, so clearly, uh, men who have sex with men living with HIV have the highest rates of anal cancer and the pre-malignant lesions. Uh, in the AIDS Malignancy Consortium, colleagues conducted a study looking at the prevalence of anal HCL in women living with HIV. 
And what they found was that 28% of women had anal H-cell, quite a high rate. And um, pap smear screening detected most of these anal H-cells. Uh, most of the women with anal H-cell had an abnormal pap smear, but 22% of them actually had a normal pap smear. So what this means is that for pap smears to really work, or cytology to really work, you have to do it serially. So once you've done it two or three times, you're, and you're bound to get an abnormal test if someone actually has some significant disease. Um, one of the other issues with uh, anal cancer prevention is really can we actually get rid of the H-cell? So we, there's actually very few data um, about this. So the AIDS Malignancy Consortium conducted a trial to look at whether um, ablating these H-cell lesions would actually make them go away, or do they just all come back and our treatments are ineffective. So uh, the study randomized uh, people living with HIV with anal H-cell, relatively limited anal H-cell, to either getting an ablation, in this case with uh, something called infrared coagulation, or careful monitoring over a year. And what they found was that the, you're much more likely to get a complete response rate if you treated and ablated the lesions. Um, so it did show a, a benefit of clearing H-cell over just doing nothing. So other controversies in anal cancer screening, I think the major one is that the H-cell is extremely common. We said 28% of women. For uh, men who have sex with men, it might be 50% in some studies. Uh, but really, very few of them will actually go on to develop anal cancer. So we end up treating a fair amount of people to really prevent a very rare cancer. Um, if we had a perfect treatment for anal H-cell, if we could just give a pill or insert a cream and have it all go away magically, then I don't think there would be any debate. We would just, we would do that uh, because the treatments were so simple. But the treatments are complicated to administer. They have some side effects and really the outcomes are suboptimal. So having recurrent H-cell after treatment is almost the norm. So we really require multiple treatments to effectively clear H-cell. And um, as if you've run a clinic and tried to refer people for HRA, you know the big problem is that there's just, there are very, very few providers. Uh, we're gonna talk about something called the anchor study, but we've, uh, to really do this national study, we've had to go out and find and recruit almost every, uh, talented HRA provider in the country to really participate to have enough people. Um, and uh, so often clinics really need to cultivate the talent within, really find someone who's interested, get them the proper training to really have that um, infrastructure and access to care. Um, so anal cancer screening is not yet recommended by many organizations or national standards. I think the HIV-MA um, guidelines do recommend it. In New York State, our state guidelines recommend it, but the CDC-OI guidelines, for example, do not. Um, so the cost-effectiveness of this uh, screening is unclear. There are studies that suggest that it's cost-effective, but there's a lot of data that's a little iffy that's put into those models, so I say it's not quite clear. Um, if you are s starting screening, I do strongly suggest that you wait um, and really only start screening people at age 30 at the earliest, but even age 35. And that's based on a couple things. One, the cost effectiveness seems much better as the person's older. And then uh, for younger people with HIV, they have a hard time with adherence and, and taking their medication. So adding really complicated medical procedures and repeated testing and uh, treatments, I think is a lot for people to deal with. 
there's a lot of HSIL at that younger age, age 20 to 30. There's, if you look for it, you're gonna find a ton of it, but a lot of that will just resolve on its own, and the rates of cancer are extremely low at that age. Uh, so overall, we think that it's better just to wait uh, until a later age to start the screening. Um, I don't think there's consensus on whether we include all women and men um, in the screening, but um, I, I would say that uh, there's clearly elevated rates of cancer in women living with HIV and other men living, non-MSM living with HIV. So uh, I think that if you're embarking uh, this, if you're developing the screening programs, I would just include all people living with HIV. Um, and as we'll talk about, the major issue is that we really have no data that treating anal HCL will reduce the risk of cancer. And we'll talk about what we're, gonna, what we're doing about this. So we're gonna move on to oropharyngeal cancer. Uh, so another question. Um, so which of these statements is false? Um, the HPV type responsible for most oropharyngeal cancers is HPV 16. I clearly wasn't paying attention when you told me not to, how to do this, okay. The HPV type responsible for most HPV related oropharyngeal cancers is HPV 16. Again, which one of these is false? Men are more likely than women to develop oropharyngeal cancer. HIV-infected populations are more likely to develop oropharyngeal cancer than HIV-uninfected populations. And HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer can be prevented in most people through active screening. Which of those is false? Yes, so the majority of you got this. So one of the problems with oropharyngeal cancer is we have not identified a pre-malignant lesion and certainly nothing that we can see visually or we, have, uh, we don't have an analogous cytology smear of the oropharyngeal cavity. Uh, you can do HPV testing, but none of this is uh, really got, is uh, part of standard clinical practice. And we'll learn that most of the HPV-related OPCs are, in fact, caused by HPV-16. There's a gender disparity, gender difference in this cancer. Men are more likely than women to develop OPC. And HIV-infected populations have about a two to three times elevated risk of HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer. Um, so there are many different subtypes of oropharyngeal cancer. Um, they, based on the site, they're more or less likely to be related to HPV. Um, so about 70% of oropharyngeal cancers are in fact HPV related. So if you have countries with good tobacco control programs, uh, lower rates of alcohol use, you see that HPV or that OPC is more likely to be related to HPV infection. Um, and of those HPV-related cancers, 85% of them are caused by HPV-16, and fully 94% of them are caused by the types contained in the nivalent HPV vaccine. So um, the rates of oropharyngeal cancer are higher in men, so it's about four times higher uh, in men than women, and that mirrors the rates of oral HPV infection, which are also much higher in men. Um, and then for people living with HIV, their rates are about two to three-fold higher than their HIV uninfected counterparts. 
So um, to give you a sense of scale, uh, in 2010, it actually became more common to develop, the, or the rates of oropharyngeal cancer became higher than cervical cancer uh, in the US, and they're projected to continue to increase. And as we said before, we have no accepted screening or prevention at modalities for prevention of HPV-related OPC. So, uh, which brings us to more broadly, how do we prevent these cancers in people living with HIV? So the first thing I've alluded to a few times is called the ANCHOR trial. Um, so this trial is really, uh, will answer whether treating anal HCL will actually prevent cancers. So it's a Herculean effort that's taking up much of our time and will for the next eight years, I think. Uh, so what the study is doing is screening a tremendous number of people living with HIV. Uh, it's estimated to be about 17,000 people will screen to find 5,000 that have anal HCL on biopsy. Then these uh, participants are randomized to either intervention, which is doing the best treatments we have available, usually ablative treatments that I mentioned earlier, but also we have uh, topical therapies that can be used. So they're treated, followed, reassessed for HCL, treated again if necessary, and that strategy continues over time. The comparator group is the monitoring arm where people are just followed every six months with biopsies once a year. We closely follow the disease, but we really don't do treatment unless cancer develops. Um, so it's clear that cancer can develop even with the treatment of um, HCL. Uh, so that is, we do have clinical equipoise, and that's really not been a barrier um, to enrollment at this point. And so at the end of this, we'll just compare the number of cancers in the two arms to see uh, what proportion were effectively prevented by the intervention. So um, there are sites in Los Angeles. I believe there's a site that's going to open in Palm Springs. Um, most people are from Southern California, but I think there are a few people from elsewhere in the country. But you can see that we have a broad number of sites across the country uh, in which to enroll. Please, please, please refer. OK. So the other way that we have to prevent anal cancer is with HPV vaccination. So this study was uh, published a number of years ago, but um, the, the manufacturer was uh, enrolled a large study of men, and the primary endpoint of that study was prevention of external disease or warts in men. Uh, but they also included a subset of young men who have sex with men, uh, 600, and they enrolled uh, men that were on the cusp of uh, sexual activity or it just started sexual activity, so a relatively HPV-naive group. Um, and they were randomized to either receive the quadrivalent HPV vaccine or placebo and followed over time. And what they found was that um, it prevented the vast majority of infections, about 95% of uh, persistent anal infections with vaccine types, but they also showed that it prevented um, anal intraepithelial neoplasia, just another broader term for the pre-malignant lesions. Um, and based on this, uh, the vaccine received an indication from the FDA for prevention of anal cancer in men as well as women, even though women were not enrolled in this trial. Um, so a number of people were interested in uh, it's a very effective vaccine, but does it have a role in people living with HIV who are already highly exposed to HPV and um, have a lot of ongoing HPV infection? 
So we conducted a trial in the AIDS clinical trials group, 5298. We had very broad inclusion criteria, HIV, people living with HIV age 27 or older. Why age 27? Because if they were age 26, as we'll learn about in a minute, they should just receive the vaccine so we would not give them placebo. Uh, they could not have had a history of HPV-related cancers. We didn't have CD4 or RNA criteria. For men, we did require a history of recent receptive anal intercourse. They were screened with anoscopy, cytology, anal and oral HPV infection. Then they got vaccine or placebo, and we followed them over time. Uh, the treatment of HCIL that was diagnosed at um, entry or uh, along the study was left, the treatment was left up to the local standard of care. Um, so unfortunately, what we found was that we really were not able to prevent, to make a big impact on new anal HPV infections. The rates were low overall, uh, but we only observed a 25% reduction in persistent anal HPV infection, but had hypothesized a 65% reduction. And uh, that was not statistically significant. Uh, if you look at the bottom, though, we did look at oral HPV. This was the first study to look at uh, prospectively evaluate oral HPV uh, in a vaccine study. And we did find that we were able to prevent 88% um, uh, of infections. But the number of infections was really low, which just highlights that oral HPV is just a less common condition than anal or cervical HPV. But these do suggest that there may be a role for prevention of oral HPV infections with the vaccine. To expand on that, there have been a few other studies that have looked at this, uh, not in a prospective manner, but have evaluated it. This was a study from Costa Rica that looked at the bivalent HPV vaccine, so for uh, targeting HPV 16 and 18. So it enrolled a large number of women and followed them for cervical HPV over time and cervical disease. And then at the end of the study, they wanted to understand what impact the vaccine might have had for anal and oral HPV infections. Uh, so they just assessed women as they exited the study. And what they found was that most oral HPV infections related to vaccine types were prevented with the HPV vaccine. So the women who had received vaccine were far less likely to have oral HPV infection or anal or cervical HPV infection at study exit. And so the way that we think that, the way that this works is uh, really similar to cervical or anal uh, prevention. So the vaccine generates an IgG response and some of that IgG is extruded into the oral fluids and that could be measured and quantified and correlates with the serum antibody response. And we think that this, uh, these antibodies in the oral fluids are what prevents oral HPV infections. Um, additional study uh, from the NHANES study, this National Health and Nutrition um, Survey, they added oral rinses to look at oral HPV infections. So in this last round, they, uh, you know, tested a number of people and then looked at their uh, oral HPV infection and whether that they reported a history of HPV vaccination or not. And you can see both for men and women, there were low, lower numbers of oral HPV infections in people who had been vaccinated. Um, what I think is disturbing to me is that you have 1,400 women who were of relatively young age in this study and only 400 of them were vaccinated and men it was even worse. So um, we'll talk about the, my plea for um, increased vaccination rates in a moment. Um, so as far as the vaccines, there are three different vaccines that have been approved, but really only one is used uh, currently, and that's the nine valent HPV vaccines. So the vac this vaccine, those nine types cause 90% of HPV-related cancer, so a huge benefit, cancer prevention benefit with the vaccine. 
So to remind you of the current ACIP HPV vaccine recommendations, so uh, for girls, it's routine vaccination of age 11 to 12 year old girls, and then catch up vaccination to age 26. So what that means is a woman comes in at age 25 in your practice and she's not unvaccinated, you offer vaccination. It's that simple. You don't worry about whether she's had an abnormal pap smear or anything like that. It's based on age alone. Uh, for men, it's a little bit different. Again, routine vaccination for 11 to 12-year-old boys, but the catch-up vaccination is up to age 21. Um, and that's because of um, uh, just cost-effectiveness. But um, in the guidelines, they do point out that uh, this should be different for men living with HIV, other immunosuppressed men, and men who have sex with men. So um, those populations should be offered vaccination, catch-up vaccination through age 26. So there's two dosing schedules, uh, a two-dose schedule that you can use if you're starting vaccination prior to age 15. However, if you're starting after that age or if there's any immune suppression, you wanna give the standard three-dose vaccine uh, regimen. So there's lots of emerging data on real-world um, HPV vaccine efficacy. A lot of this comes from Australia. Uh, you can see in the red line and the blue lines, these uh, serial age cohorts um, of younger age people after HPV vaccination, you see declines in high-grade cervical abnormalities attributable to the HPV vaccine. If you look at just the detection of um, vaccine types, it's dramatically reduced after introduction of the HPV vaccine. And then finally, genital warts is going away as a problem in Australia. The overall rates of um, genital warts have declined dramatically after the introduction of HPV vaccination. Additional uh, strategies that we have, um, the START study uh, looked at um, early versus delayed antiretroviral therapy. Uh, I think people were surprised by the number of cancers that developed, even among people with um, high CD4 counts. And overall, the immediate ART reduced cancers by 76%. So just another reason to be very strong about starting ART early. And in fact, uh, modeling would suggest that just that strategy alone will help to reduce the um, rates of anal cancer in people living with HIV by up to 25% just with early initiation of ART. Um, and one last intriguing strategy was the use of statins. Uh, at the last CROI, uh, there was a uh, very detailed matched analysis conducted within the VA, um, uh, VA system that uh, looked at both people with and without HIV infection uh, and uh, analyzed their risk of cancer or the relative uh, risk of cancer, uh, depending on whether they had received a statin or not. And they found overall that the death rate was 45% lower with statin use. And um, the risk of cancer overall was reduced by 40%. And if you look at some specific virus-related cancer, there's a good suggestion that it could uh, make an impact on the virally-mediated cancers as well. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, potential biases with this kind of um, uh, non-randomized study, but it is uh, does give more weight to the broader use of statins in people with HIV. Okay, so in summary, anal cancer is a common cancer in people living with HIV, and we can consider screening for anal cancer. Um, however, the data to support this are limited. Um, certainly, uh, maybe not such a problem in California, but if you're in the southeastern U.S. where you have very 
very few um, uh, healthcare resources devoted to um, HIV infection, perhaps this isn't the highest priority. And certainly we need additional data. Um, HPV vaccination is our best hope for prevention of HPV-related cancer. So as healthcare providers, we should be motivated by the evidence that shows that it's a highly, highly effective vaccine. It's an incredibly safe vaccine, and we should all be advocates for HPV vaccination. And hopefully with the worldwide push for an early, early initiation of ART, we can see a reduced incidence of these HPV-related cancers. And some acknowledgments. Um, obviously, a lot of this work is, uh, has been developed through the AIDS Malignancy Consortium that's conducted, you know, most of the studies that I've cited. Okay. We don't need to do that, right? Okay. Um, so I think now we're ready for questions. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Tim, for that great talk. Um, first question uh, is one I think we all struggle with. Um, how do you manage ASCUS on a pap smear? And once you've found it, how often should you be doing anal cytology and follow-up? Okay, so the recommendations, uh, I say the recommendations, it's sort of like the group consensus because there's not really specific, uh, people often ask for a specific document uh, for guidelines about how to do this. And there isn't one that really exists to my knowledge. Uh, but generally what you do is if you, you separate the pap smear into normal or abnormal. So abnormal means ascus it, uh, and anything beyond that. Um, so if you're just using cytology, uh, anybody that had ascus, you would go on to anoscopy and biopsy, and then you would base your follow-up and treatment on that result. Um, so to extend the question a little bit further, the way that cytology is really helpful is that if you have high-grade disease that's found on cytology, then you better find it on histology. And if you don't, then that means that you, you probably missed it and need to repeat the procedure a bit. Um, also for ASCUS, there are data that suggest that you can use HPV testing to discriminate whether that's something you need to worry about or not. So if you have that available to you, you can consider getting HPV testing for people with ASCUS. Um, the problem is that most people that you screen have high-risk HPV infections, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, take additional testing off the table for very many people. Uh, so the cost-effectiveness of that's a little bit unclear, but that would be a possibility for ASCUS as well. So dovetailing on that exact question, someone else was asking, considering that the overwhelming majority of invasive malignancies are related to HPV-16, mm -hmm. what is the role of screening specifically for HPV-16? It's a great question. Um, again, we don't have specific guidelines, but uh, in various studies that we've done for the ACT and AMC, if you have HPV-16, there's a very high likelihood that you have, um, or there's a good likelihood that you have the H cell. Uh, the premalignant lesions. So if you were starting with an HPV test instead of cytology and you had a test that told you HPV-16 or not, um, HPV-16 would be the people at highest priority for undergoing HRA and biopsies. Any thoughts on the additional benefit of vaccination in people with a history of HPV-related dysplasia? Um, I appreciate that question because I now realize I just glossed over that on my slide. Uh, so when we did the study for 5298 in the ACTG, um, one of the 
reasons that we pr proposed that study was that there was data that suggested that um, people with high-grade disease who had had a prior vaccine, HPV vaccination actually responded much better to treatments. They were more likely to clear their high-grade disease. That was in the cervix as well as some retrospective studies in the anus. So that's what we built into the study to really have a good, well-powered look at whether HPV vaccination would improve treatment outcomes. And we found absolutely no difference. There was no difference whatsoever in the groups. We did not find any role for HPV vaccination improving outcomes, which was unfortunate. But what it means is that we really need to focus on other treatment strategies. There's some therapeutic HPV vaccines that are being developed. If anybody could de develop a direct acting anti-HPV drug, that would be spectacular. Uh, you know, who knows what the future holds? Topical immune checkpoint inhibitors, who knows? But we really need additional therapies and better therapies. Thanks, Tim. Um, there's a question here. I'm not. I'm, whoever asked it may want to help me clarify what the exact question was. But the question is: Are we to ignore sexual history when giving HPV vaccination? I, I think probably the spirit is: um, You know, do you administer it regardless of timing of sexual debut based on the guidelines, or um, when people remain at risk during the vaccination process? How do you counsel people regarding behavior before completion of vaccination? So. I'll answer it in a sort of side way, which is to say that really the focus should be on uh, strengthening vaccine programs so that you vaccinate kids at age 10 or 11 or nine, and maybe we should just be doing it like years earlier, who knows, but really starting before sexual debut is the goal. And if we don't do that, that's a failure on our healthcare system part. So, but you know, we live in the real world and so people will, have missed the opportunity for HPV vaccination. So if you start sort of guessing about the relative risk of acquiring HPV infections and what the benefit is, it's just don't worry about it. Just vaccinate them um, based on their age guidelines. Yes, if someone's been exposed to all of the HPV types, they've already been infected with all of the HPV types, then they may not have any benefit from that. But remember, there's anal sites, there's cervical sites, there's oropharyngeal sites. So it's not just infection overall, but it's a site-specific infection. So I think that there's still potential for benefit. And given that the vaccine has an incredibly uh, incredible safety record, I think that there's really no reason. I, I would just follow the guidelines. That's what they're there for. And Tim, let me just ask you, just from a practical standpoint, for patients um, who are past the age requirements, but come in sort of interested in the vaccine anyway, and might be willing to pay for it or have other ways of getting it. What are what are you approach? How are you approaching those? Situations? Yeah, I mean, personally, I I don't I don't try to bill insurance for that or you know state ADAP programs or something like that. I think that if it's outside of the guidelines, you know, and people are willing to pay for it, then it's something we can discuss. Um, currently, I don't have much evidence for a benefit, especially for people living with HIV. I think the one caveat would be oropharyngeal cancer. And if we can actually show prospectively that it does make a big difference for prevention of oral HPV infection and by extension oral cancer, then I think that would be the way that we would, um, the reason we would implement HPV vaccination much more broadly. And just sort of a follow-up on that is, are you counseling people differently with this uptick in HIV-infected individuals and MSM increases in oropharyngeal cancers? Are you counseling people differently? I mean, when you have these conversations with people, most people are like, there is no planet on which oral intercourse is acceptable with a condom. But mm -hmm. that's sort of what the data is sort of suggesting. 
Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know of any data that says that uh, consistent use of con. I mean, come on, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Patients want to know the answer. Well, I mean, yeah, you can, you know, what we do for anal HPV infection is that we, you know, we say that reducing the number of partners or using condoms could prevent some HPV infections. It's not nearly perfect. So by extension, you could do the same for the oropharyngeal cavity. Tim's going to murder me. No, 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 no. And, and I will say that I, I do the same thing for smoking cessation, you know, because tobacco can prolong HPV infection, so we encourage people another reason to quit smoking, and I don't know if that really has benefit or not, but we do that. Well, there's other health benefits. Other health benefits. Additional questions for Tim. Yes, uh, one of the stronger, within people living with HIV, one of the stronger risk factors for HPV-related cancer is more severe immune suppression. So the, it seems that the key is around a CD4 of 200. So the time with low CD4 counts below 200 seems to be a strong risk factor for anal cancer. Um, and so that's why earlier initiation of ART and really having the median CD4 diagnosis becoming higher and higher, we're hoping that we're preventing a lot of that severe immune suppression and by extension, that elevated risk for anal cancer. 